Hello, my name is Cody Carnett. It is my utmost desire to communicate clearly the truth of Scripture. Before the following recording's discussion on the wedding ceremony and what constitutes a Christian biblical wedding, I wanted to take a few moments and make a few clarifying remarks. Number one, the marriage ceremony is not outside a Christian's responsibility to take every thought captive, honor God, and seek to be a light to the dark world around us. Now, this this may seem uh, pretty unnecessary to make clear, but I think oftentimes, unconsciously, we don't even really think about taking captive or honoring God or seeking to be a light to the dark world around us when we think about a marriage ceremony. There are many ways, traditions, and symbols that individuals use in a wedding ceremony, and many of them are very special in their significance and add to the beauty of the gospel picture seeking to be portrayed in that ceremony. I certainly am all for creativity, but don't want to be bound and don't want you to be bound by the ways, traditions, and symbols of the modern-day ceremony in your quest to create as clear a picture of Christ's love for his bride, the church, as possible. Second point is the best way to create a beautiful, God-honoring wedding ceremony is to study the gospel. And the gospel is immense in its entirety. It is very wide, and you can have a wedding ceremony that portrays the beginning of the gospel or the end of the gospel or the middle, and that's wonderful because every ceremony will look different. But it should be able to be portraying the gospel very clearly. So after you study a, the gospel clearly, then seek to mirror that story. And all that is required, as you will hear in the following recording for a biblical wedding, is that you covenant before God and witnesses to remain faithful to one another. All the other trappings are your blank trait, blank slate, excuse me, to paint a creative and accurate picture of the magnificent love God has poured out to us through his son's work on the cross. Clarifying point number three would be that I think it would be wise for you to study if you want to know more about what would look a, a, a biblical or God-honoring wedding ceremony would look like, I think it would be wise for you to study the Jewish customs of biblical times for the wedding ceremony. This is the context we have when we read the scriptures on the few examples we have in scripture of a wedding ceremony. And you and I are certainly not bound to follow those examples, but there are some very beautiful, the Jewish examples that is, there are some very beautiful and helpful ideas within that part of history. We are praying for you, and may God grant you wisdom as you consider these matters. Thank you. Let's pray before we begin our time here. Father in heaven, we are we're grateful to you for the opportunity to come to your word. We're grateful to the opportunity to be able to study scripture and understand how we can better honor you and please you with our lives. And Father, we see... In, in the culture today in a tremendous attack upon marriage. And we see, Father, that you have given marriage as a picture of your relationship with your bride, the church. So, Father, we're asking that you would help us to see that picture even more clearly this morning. Have a better understanding of the biblical instruction given on these issues and also understand the cultural and traditional um, thoughts and paradigms that have worked their way into our thinking. And Father, our, our ultimate request would be that you would be glorified, and second of all, that we would 
be conformed into the image of your son. We know, Lord, that you will gain glory through that, but that we would take the scriptures and not just be hearers of the word, but doers also. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Take your Bible and turn with me to Genesis 2.24. So many of you have probably noticed that we seem to be in full wedding season. Get an amen from the right side here. And and certainly in this community. And God has certainly been working much in that way in this past year. Because for a while it seemed like uh, maybe our church would, and the community would go down as the, in history, as the old unmarried singles community and group. But the uh, Lord's rescued us from that. I counted last night ten in the past year, ten that I know of, and y'all probably know many more, ten that I know of either newly engaged or newly married couples as of this year. And we still got some time to go, so if anybody wants to <laughs> sign up, you have about a month. But that's, that's quite a bit, considering that this church has, uh, up until that, had uh, pretty much two or three weddings Zach and Kristen, myself, Mark and Sharon, uh, Lee and Julie Dreyer, and I think that's pretty close to being it. So there was, we had a, we had a little bit of a drought, but we're coming on strong. Um, so it's a wonderful season. It's a wonderful season in our, in our time of our church and in the community. And obviously we'll be celebrating on Tuesday the wedding of Christopher and Amanda. And as I began thinking about this whole wedding season, it struck me as interesting uh, one of the things I was struck by is that oftentimes, rabbit trail here, I'll bring it back around, but oftentimes young people fall away from the faith because they don't fully have it as their own. And they don't have a full grasp of really what they believe and they will be raised in a church such as this and they'll go for 10, 20 years or so in a church such as this and everything will look great and then seemingly out of the blue to us, one day it all just kind of comes tumbling down and they trend down another path, and unfortunately and sadly, most times that trend, that path, is a path of worldliness. So there's a, there's a real importance to making sure our young people, you young people, really understand what you believe and why we do what we do as Christians, uh, as biblical Christians by God's grace. So this, this conversation that I'm going to be having this morning, it won't be as much preaching, more of a teaching conversation, uh, is directed straight at you. If you're 12, if you're 10, if you're 9, if you're 16, if you're 20, if you're unmarried, this is right at you. And here's what I want to do this morning. I want to break down the wedding ceremony. Because oftentimes, or back in June, we had a wedding conference here at the church, and it was great, but we obviously could have had a lot more time and gone into a lot more depth. And one of the things we didn't go into was a wedding ceremony. What happens at a wedding ceremony? And there's a lot that goes on in a wedding ceremony. And some of y'all were at a wedding ceremony last night with Holden and Rachel Fox. There's going to be a wedding, obviously, on Tuesday. And so as biblical Christians, wanting to conform ourselves to the scriptures, when we go into a wedding, do you know what is biblical, what is traditional, what is cultural? Do you know why we do what we do? Because if marriage is under such attack as it is, and it's always been under attack, and will always be under attack, 
But the attack on marriage waxes and wanes depending upon the strength of the marriage and the culture. And right now we have a very weak marriage in the culture. So in order to help that, we've really got to reclaim an entire understanding of not only what is marriage, but how do you get married? Because most of the culture has it very much wrong. So we want to, we want to dig into scriptures this morning and see what does the scripture say about if you're going to get married, what has to go on at a wedding ceremony? Because I want you, especially young people, to go to a wedding. I want you to go to Tuesday wedding or any other wedding coming up and be able to sit there and go, that's why they did that, and that's why they did that. And that was sweet, and that was nice, and that was just fine, but that was fluff. And then over here was nice and sweet, but that was fluff. That was required. Oh, they missed this. They didn't have that. They should have had that. And you need to be able to do that so that you can uh, encourage others. You can, If you're to hold them accountable, you need to know what you're holding them accountable to. So this is what we're going to do this morning is, is dive in. So I, I've asked you to go to Genesis 2.24. And uh, once you're there, flip over to Revelations 19. Those are going to be pretty much the two passages we're going to work back and forth on. There's certainly other passages we can go to. For the sake of time, we won't go to too many of them. I would encourage you, especially fathers and mothers, take this um, small offering here of information and dig deeper and, and use it to be in discussion with your children. We had a great discussion driving home last night with a two-year-old and a three-year-old and a, now a five-year-old. And you can talk quite a bit to them about what they saw. And they saw a lot because I just started asking them questions and they started answering. And I'm like, wow, they, they really caught on. So they're, they're, they're listening and they're watching and we can certainly have a conversation about Genesis 2.24 would be our opening passage here. May the Lord honor the reading of his word. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. <clears throat> and then Re- Revelation 19 is the um, the picture, or Re- Genesis 2.24 is the picture of what, will, of what is going on in Revelation 19. You see that verse 6, the marriage supper of the Lamb, Christ returning for his bride, the bride being ready for her husband. Let me make a few, uh, let me make just a few points before I, I say this. Many have asked me, would you do anything different at your wedding? And I'm going to say, and anybody that's married should be able to say a resounding yes, I would. Now let me say what I'm not meaning. I'm not meaning that I am ungrateful for what we had. I do not mean that I think we had an unbiblical wedding. I do not think that it was not a wonderful time. All those things are extremely true. What I do mean is that as I've grown closer to the Lord... And as I've gotten a clearer picture of the gospel, that would, if I had the information I have now, would have me change aspects of the wedding ceremony simply so that I could portray the gospel more clearly. Back in 2008, a lot of these questions I'd never asked myself. So I just did what I thought would be the best presentation of the gospel. God gave grace, and we were, we were very blessed. But would I do it differently now? Of course I would. That does not mean that anything that happened back then was not a wonderful time. Lucy and I talked about this. We would certainly ask a lot of the questions I'm going to ask today. But obviously in 2008, some of these things just never crossed our mind. So I want to be, I say that because some thoughts would be, some people would say, well, you just, you know, you're just not grateful for what you had or what you got or, boy, you know, are you really thinking that? No, no, no. I am happily married and I loved my wedding ceremony. But I want you all to take it and and shape it and move it and give it even more clear presentation of the gospel. 
because that's really what a wedding ceremony should, um, what, what should go on there. So I'm certainly not against wedding ceremonies. I'm just going to read a portion I have here. But I am against the money-driven, bridal-palooza culture that the Western Hemisphere has going on. It is all about the wedding with little regard to the marriage afterward. It is often man-centered, not God-centered. It often leaves the brides physically, emotionally, spiritually, and and, um, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and mentally exhausted before entering marriage. So there would be a warning there. I mean, you're going to hear some of the things this morning that you thought were incredibly sweet and romantic and a necessity in a wedding ceremony. And I might go, pop your balloon a little bit. Not trying to discourage you, but what I am trying to to get you to do is to think, okay, now wait, what is really important here? Because we've got a problem in the United States of America, which is we're so infatuated with our wedding ceremonies and all the nice little trappings that we have in it that we're willing to cut out things that are the biblical requirements to be married in order to include the things that we really like and that are nice. And those are wonderful and they have their place, but we've got to make sure that we understand really what is necessary for a Christian wedding. They're just simply weddings and uh, traditions and influences that we don't want to necessarily make any more important than they need to be. Um, Before we get into Genesis 2.24, I'm going to speed through six questions, and then I'm going to talk about some much deeper questions. These would be the... uh, just some of the things that happen at a wedding ceremony, and this is why we do them. And some of them are have biblical uh, connotations, and some of them have absolutely none. So why would you have wedding attendance? That would be a question. Why would I have to have wedding attendance? Well, scripturally, there are wedding attendants. They're not wedding attendants the way we think of wedding attendants. We think of wedding attendants of being up there, and they're our best friends, or there are people that we've known for a long time, and we want to honor them by being in the wedding. That wouldn't be the biblical side of things. The biblical side of things would be they're there to hold us accountable. And if you really want to go to biblical, they weren't there to hold them accountable for actual ceremony. They were there to hold them accountable to the consummation of the wedding. So there would be this whole ritual that would happen in order for them to say, yes, we are witness to the fact that they are married. And obviously that is much different than what we do today. Number two, why would you wear a white wedding dress? Well, Revelations 19 does talk about uh, the bride being a beautiful apparel. But for years and years and years, up until about 1840, brides just wore whatever they wanted to wear or whatever they had in their closet or whatever they just pulled off the rack or were able to go buy from their local store. If you talk to Nanny Rose, talk to Nanny Rose about her getting married. It's really interesting. She prepared for two weeks for her wedding, and then she got married. And it was just kind of everybody come together on a weekday, and she just kind of wore what was nice, and he wore a suit, and, you know, it's just... There wasn't all of the trappings that we have going on. Queen Victoria, she had a reign in England from 1837 to 1910. She was the first one to wear kind of a silver wedding dress, breaking from this tradition of something that would be royally, uh, a royal color. She wore more of a silver and a white, and then everybody picked up on it, and now everybody wears white wedding dresses. You can certainly see that there's a lot of biblical sides to that thing, but that wouldn't be required for a bride to wear a white wedding dress. And I know brides in here would go, no way, I've got to wear a white one. Well, you can. That's fine. Nothing wrong with that. But there aren't as many biblical connotations of that as we might desire to think. Uh, interestingly enough, tuxedos, Teddy Roosevelt, he came up with that, uh, started wearing those, and that popularized that opinion, and now most men wear the tuxedos. Why does the bride remain hidden from the groom and all until her time to come down the aisle? Well, most of us want this sweet thought, but really, 
The aspect of it was Jacob and Leah. Because you might not like the way your bride looks. So we're not going to show you until you remove the veil and the consummation of the wedding, of the marriage. And then whether you like her or not, she's yours. So that's why the ladies hide. And all the ladies are going, oh, I thought there was a difference. Well, the other reason, the other reason would be is if you take the Jewish custom of how weddings happened, it was a contract, and then there was a consummation, and then there was a celebration. So the dad and the young man, even as young as five or six or seven years old for this young lady, would enter into a contract of saying, okay, you are going to marry this one. Yep, you're going to marry this one. We're going to pay this kind of money. There's going to be these exchanges. And a lot of times the guy would never see the girl until the wedding. Well, you can kind of be thinking, well, how could we reclaim that? Well, we could certainly say we want to be a pure bride in Revelations 19. I think there are some of those things. But one of the sweetest weddings I witnessed was a bride and a groom, just the idea, throwing ideas. Bride and a groom, they saw each other before the wedding, and then they stood in the hall and greeted all the guests that came in before the wedding, just welcoming them to this celebration that they were going to be in and how delighted that they were going to be there for them and how... uh, loving that they were together and what the Lord had done and giving a testimony of what the Lord had given. So there's a lot of different ways to do it, but it isn't quite as um, special as we would might to think, at least historically anyway. Don't want, uh, didn't want the groom to change his mind. Why the wedding bouquet toss? That's pretty popular. Well, the wedding bouquet toss came about because back a long time ago, it was a myth that if you got a piece of the bride's garment, it was a good luck charm. So literally, they would tear the garment off the bride. And so to, to ward the people off long enough, there was this tradition of taking the garter and the wedding bouquet and tossing it to make everybody run so they could flee. <laughs> and so if you're going to go into a wedding bouquet toss, you've got to be thinking, okay, number one, everybody kind of knows that this is a, kind of embarrassing thing to be shoved on the floor and stand in the middle and you got to catch it. And, and it, historically, that had nothing to do with Christianity. It was actually something that was very pagan. Um, but it's very popular today. Something to think about. Why the kiss? Why do we kiss? The Romans started the kiss. The Romans said that if you were going to be uh, betrothed, that in order to consummate that betrothal, the beginning of the betrothal, there wasn't anything else that happened until they were officially married. They would actually have a very passionate kiss in front of a crowd, and then they would not know each other until much later on, and that was the beginning of their betrothal period. And the Western culture took that, and we've run with it to the point that now we have the sealing of the vows with a kiss. And there's certainly some other Romans, uh, Roman myths there that if you had a contract, you'd seal that contract with a kiss. Uh, you certainly, some people would say, well, Genesis 2:24, uh, the two become one flesh, so we're essentially proving that we are one flesh in front of the all the attendants by kissing. Um, but some people would see that as you've got to do that, and there wouldn't be anything biblical that would stand on that. Why does the dad walk down the daughter? Well, this is a sweet tradition, uh, and is, is, it is good, but um, a lot of t- there, there's two ways of looking at it. One would be, if you look at the Jewish custom, it's a contract. And it was a lot of times there was some business involved. So the dad was walking down the daughter, not because the daughter wanted necessarily to go, but but he was bringing her to the marriage. And honey, you're coming. And there's a dowry involved, and I got it, and you don't, and you're coming down the aisle with me. 
So it was more of a business I'm bringing you to here. There's certainly now um, a much better view of that, which is the father is presenting the bride. And this was very Jewish as well. The, the father was to present the bride, either whether she wanted to be there or not, as pure. And he, he had to do that. He had, and there wasn't, you can read in Leviticus, there was big retribution, there was big consequences too. If the dad presented the daughter as a, as a virgin, as a pure bride, and she was not. And so a lot of t- that's what happens a lot of times now is that is actually the symbol that's happening is the father is walking down this daughter. And it's interesting that that's the symbol because in America, most brides are not pure. They may be physically pure. Most are not. But few of them are actually emotionally pure. And yet that's what we're seeking to portray. So when you see Amanda being walked down by Mr. Vaughn, he's presenting his daughter to Christopher as a pure bride and saying, she is. She's ready. I'm escorting her to you. I'm condoning this marriage. I'm saying that it is good and it is honoring in the sight of the Lord. So none of these. I've mentioned six things. All of them are interesting to some point or the other, uh, but none of them are actually prerequisites for a Christian wedding, or Christian ceremony, which obviously then begs the question: What is applicable? And as I stated earlier, the concern I would have would be a lot of times we're caught up in the trappings and we miss the biblical requirements that would make it a Christian wedding. So we're going to look uh, at scripture here and really we're going to have to kind of explore in, very, in a very shallow way the Jewish customs of, uh, of what a wedding would be, this wedding ceremony would be, because that is really, um, when you read scripture, that's the context in which this was written. That was what was happening in that time period. So this is when Christ gives a lot of his declarations, especially in John, and gives the parable there of the of the um, ten attendants waiting for the bridegroom to come and different things. He is in Revelation 19 and Genesis. It is talking from the understanding of what was going on in that time. So there's this very clear picture if you understand uh, a Jewish wedding. So the Jewish custom would say there's only three aspects that have to happen and to get married, which would be, there would be a contract. We do this a little differently. We have a, we have a ceremony or a celebration, and then we sign a contract, and then we have a consummation. And the, the Jewish custom would be there's a contract signed before anything happens, and there's a consummation, then there's a celebration. So we'll look at that just a little bit. Genesis 2.24, as I've also already read. Let's look at Matthew 19. This would be the New Testament aspect of Genesis 2.24. Christ is speaking on divorce. Pharisees, verse 3 of uh, Matthew 19, came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any reason? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Well, many of us know that a marriage is a covenant, not a contract. It's a covenant. And so that would beg the question for young people, what is a covenant? And why is marriage a covenant? Well, marriage is a covenant because it's the picture of the relationship Christ has with his bride, where there is a, an agreement between two parties that state they will be loyal to one another and will do such and such and so and so. So we, we, have, uh, we call marriage a covenant, 
and we say you know, we're going to enter into holy covenantal matrimony uh, because this is this ceremony is to be a picture of what Christ is to the church. Now, most people today view marriage as a contract. And a contract would be simply an agreement between two parties. And here's the difference. If you were in a covenant, you would agree with another party to do something irregardless of whether or not they did it. A contract would say, I'm going to do such and such and so and so as long as you do such and such and so and so. And you can see how this works out in the Western culture today. I'm going to get married to you. And I expect you to be such and such and so and so. And so they're going to, somebody would pledge their life, love, and devotion to one another. I'm reading here. The woman, two months into the marriage, decides that her new husband isn't quite as perfect as she once thought. So in order to help straighten him out, she begins withholding different things in order to pressure him into a good behavior. I'm not going to do your laundry until you put the dirty clothes in the basket. I'm not going to clean the bathroom until you squeeze the tube of the toothpaste from the end. Not going to kiss you at night until you only say nice things to me. Not going to cook you dinner until you take out the garbage. The man says, well, if she won't do her thing, then I certainly don't have to do mine. I won't mow the lawn until she gives me a kiss at night. I won't talk with her and will instead talk with other women until she learns to appreciate all I do. And obviously this marriage would be going in the very much wrong direction and would probably not end well. But that's how most people view marriage today, which is, hey, I don't have to do anything unless you do it. Because we promise all these things to each other, but really what I'm saying is I'm going to do this if you'll do that. And that's not a covenant. That's a contract. A covenant says, hey, irregardless of what you do, I'm going to be faithful to what I am saying to you. Now, a covenant is broken when one of the parties violates. And so every marriage in here would have had a time when there was a a violation of the covenant where either the husband or the wife didn't do something they had covenanted to do. And so therefore the covenant in some ways is broken. Now it continues on because both parties are still involved. But the the reason this is such a picture of the, the beauty of the gospel is God is the unfailing husband. And we fail over and over and over again in our covenant to him, and yet he never leaves us nor forsakes us, and he stays with us, and he continues to do what he has promised to do. The government sees marriage as a contract. That's why you have to go through such legal hurdles to file for a divorce. That is also why so many states have now said that marriage is not just between one man and a woman because it's a contract, and you can write up a contract with anybody you like. And so you've got to be thinking logically, so when is the day coming in, our, in America when a marriage is going to be between a man and his dog or a woman in her shoes or whatever else? And you're going to have to say, well, it's legal because it's a contract. So contract with whoever you like. And you can see the direction we're heading in our culture today because we've lost this understanding of what a covenant is and we've replaced it with our improper view of a contract. A covenant differs in that two parties are pledging to uphold their end of the agreement irregardless of whether or not the other party upholds their end. A much different picture than we have today. Now, interestingly enough, biblically, a covenant had to have witnesses. So you see David and Jonathan covenant together, and God is their witness. Jacob and Laban covenant together, 
And they said, God is their witness. And there was other times covenants happened, but there was always a witness. And so that is why you can't just go off in the woods and say, we're married. You have to have witnesses saying, I've observed they are married. And that's why we would invite guests to a wedding. You could say, well, hey, I could just go down to the justice of peace. And yes, you could, and you would be legally married. And you, would, you could even have a biblical marriage down there. And people would say, oh, yeah, you could because you have your witnesses. But we as Christians would say, well, we want to have people come because we want to have a clear presentation of what we're actually doing, of the gospel, of what we're seeking to be a picture of. So we're going to have witnesses come to hold us accountable to what we're promising to do. Incidentally, that is why two people just living together is not a marriage. And it is sin and will never be as strong as a marriage. They are wanting to try on all that marriage offers without the commitment, remember the covenant, to really love and care for that person. And you could say, and many have said, well, they really love one another. And my response to that would be, if they really love one another, then why won't they get witnesses and pledge their life and devotion to one another? Oh, that means they really don't love one another, does it? Because they won't do that. They just like the trappings that come with having another person. And really, it's a contract. Look, I'll cook your meals. You do this. I'll do that. You do this. It's not really love. It's more selfish. And it's sin. And so we would say, if you really love them, then go gain witnesses and do it lawfully by the state and according to Scripture and get married. Publicly binding you legally, morally, financially, spiritually, and all other ways. We certainly have much of that in our culture today. A man uh, who is a professor of Bible and Old Testament at Master Seminary in California says, Frequently covenants between individuals were said to be divinely witnesses, divinely witnessed. David's covenant with Jonathan was made before the Lord, 1 Samuel 23:18. Laban, when making a covenant with Jacob, repeatedly reminded his son-in-law that though no man is with us, God is witness between you and me, Genesis 31:50. Calling God to witness a covenant agreement may be the reason why many covenant oaths between individuals were solemnized in the house of the Lord. And when a covenant was violated, God often called upon creation to testify against the guilty party. Covenant was a very, very solemn thing. So this is certainly why we would invite people to a wedding. Because you as a Christian should want to be a clear picture of the gospel from the first second of your marriage. And so you would want people there to see what God has done and is doing and the picture you're trying to represent at the ceremony there. So th then you have the question, okay, if that's a covenant, then what is a vow? We have the wedding vows, right? What is a vow? Why do we have wedding vows? Well, the dictionary would say a vow is a solemn promise. And a vow was oftentimes between just you and God. And it oftentimes had a, um, a significance in that you were not promising to do anything right now. You were saying, God, I will at a such and such later date, do something if you will do something right now. And so a wedding vow is actually not even the term you should use at a wedding ceremony because you're covenanting. So you're already proclaiming truth to one another. You're already saying things. So you're in a covenant uh, ceremony rather than in a vow ceremony. But we use the term vow. We use it obviously pretty loosely, just indicating that we're saying something um, that would go along with the covenant. But that's oftentimes why we have wedding vows, is, and you should have, which we'll talk here in a minute, because uh, we've taken the covenant out and we put it as a contract. According to Matthew 5, 33 through 37, your yes should be yes, your no should be no. 
So we, we ask these questions and they will say, you know, I will or I do. In Scripture, there's no indication anywhere in Scripture that you should vow if you are getting married. In fact, some theologians would say there's no picture of that in Scripture and you would be wrong in doing it. I have a little different view on that. I'm going to show you why here in just a second. But the marriage vow is something we have come up with, that whole term. Now, what is actually happening in the marriage vow is something entirely different. But that term, notice I'm saying term, not just you need to say some things, but the term is just one that we have applied. So the next question being, okay, so if I'm not vowing and I'm in a covenant situation here with this other person, what should I say and should I say anything at all? And the answer is yes, you should say something and you should say quite a bit. And here's what some of the things that you should say. The reason you should say something uh, first off, is scripture is back and forth from each cover shows very clearly that what you say is very important. What comes out of your mouth is very, very important, and it binds you as an individual. And to you can't just stand in front of one another and look at them deep in their eyes and just think these thoughts that are going to go across, I love you and I commit to you, and I'm just not going to say it because I'm intentional. It doesn't work. You have to say something. So what do you say? And is it important what you say? And yes, it is very important what you say. Today's world, we have um, the different things that these bride, the bride and groom would say to uh, show their intention and their devotion to one another. And it's pretty popular to write your own vows or to write your own statements. And uh, I would discourage you from doing that simply because it's really hard to improve on the ones that are right there, that have been in tradi- very traditional and I'll read those in a minute, and I'll show you why that they're very hard to improve on. I would take the old standby and use it, and, and because of our culture, I would only add one thing for the bride, and I'd add one thing for the groom. Let me read the traditional ones here. I take, I blank, take you blank, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness or in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part, and hereunto I pledge you my faithfulness. And the bride or the groom would say the same thing. Now, that, as far as a covenant, that covers everything because it is basically saying no matter the circumstances, I am covenanting with you to uphold my love to you and to stay with you and to care for you and to nurture you and all these different things. The bride, they would both repeat to each other, and I'm gonna, I would add one thing, and if I've only been an officiant in two weddings or one to come on Tuesday – and this is what I tell them I have to have in it, otherwise I won't do the marriage ceremony. And here's what I would have to have in there. Uh, the reason I, I haven't put these two things in there is because society, uh, we've watered down marriage to such, an, uh, to such a degree that I think it's really important to make sure that you're committing vocally in front of witnesses what Scripture says that you have to do. And here's what I would add. And I'm going to use Christopher and Amanda's names here. I, Chris, take you, Amanda, to be my wedded wife. To have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. And here's what I'm going to add. To lead and love you unconditionally as Christ loves the church. Until death alone separates us. I am man to take you, Benjamin, to be my wedded husband. To have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. And here's what I would add. To obey, respect, and be subject as the church is to Christ. And that's really controversial. That the woman would have to obey, respect, and be subject. And that the man would have to lead and love. Because we want the man to do whatever he wants and the woman to do whatever she wants. 
But I'm saying that you have got to say these things in a Christian wedding or it's not a Christian wedding because in today's culture, you can, you can vow all that stuff and then you can do whatever you like. You know, I can be in a, I want to have a Christian marriage. And so I'm going to vow to be with you and to hold you from better or for worse, richer or poorer, sickness and health till death alone separates us. And that means I can rebel and do all that I like and I don't have to picture Christ's bride as the bride or the groom to love and lead unconditionally as Christ does. So how can you have a Christian marriage if you're not going to at least vow to uphold what you're supposed to be a picture of or to state intentionally as a covenant relationship what you're going to uphold as you desire to be a picture of the gospel? It's very important that what you do, of what you do say. And as you would approach a wedding ceremony, the goal, young people, should be I want to see every aspect. What are they doing? Why are they doing this? And how does this show a clearer picture of what Christ of Christ's love to us? Now, a hot topic would be should the bride come down last or should she come down first? All brides say come down last, all grooms say come down first. <laughs> so there's there's two sides. And the question would be, do you have to do it that way? Does the bride have to come down last? And is it, a, is it wrong that the bride would come down first and then the groom enters in his royal steed or whatever? Um, and I'm going to tell, tell you that the answer can be yes and the answer can be no. And the answer really... Is, is really indicative of as the bride and groom that are helping to plan this wedding, the question is really, what part of the gospel are you wanting to proclaim at your wedding? So let's go to Revelation 19. Because both, if, if the bride comes to the groom, that's biblical. If the groom comes for the bride... That's biblical. And both happen. But they're both in different aspects of the gospel presentation. Let's look at Revelation 19, starting verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Alleluia, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made him, made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the prophecy of spirit, the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has, written na- he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, 
from which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and and Lord of Lords. So, let's break this down. If you have the bride, if, if you have the groom coming, let's say the bride enters first, she goes to the end of the aisle, turns, the doors swing open, behold, the bridegroom, and he comes down. Well, what aspect of the gospel would that be? That would be that this is at the end of the gospel where Christ has saved us. We, are, we have been washed by the water of the word. He has sanctified us, and he has prepared us to be a pure bride. Now, we all know that we're not going to be pure brides for Christ, as pure as we ought to be, and that's where the cross of Christ comes in. And so we will be able to stand before him pure because of what he has done, what he has prepared for us. And he comes and takes us as his bride. So there would be that aspect of it. Well, what about the aspect that we normally do, which is the groom is at the end and the bride comes down? Well, in Jewish custom, it would be that the husband, I mean, that the father is going to bring the bride to the husband and say, she is pure. And there's this intentionality to the covenant relationship by the man stepping out first and saying, I'm going to be willing to step out and honor and love and care for this woman. And in the Jewish custom, he may not even know what she looks like. And she may be completely unlovely by the world's eyes. And that's a pretty strong picture of the, of, of the gospel as well, of Christ, who loved us, who was very much unlovely. And he took a covenant, intentional covenant covenantal um, move toward us when we were not able to and he went out first and he declared his intentions and then and then the bride was prepared and brought to him so there's i think you can take both aspects of it either aspect you take i think you have to make sure you portray clearly why are we doing it this way and how are we seeking to portray the gospel here and do you understand that this bride is she's coming to her a husband-to-be is coming uh, not perfect. She's certainly not perfect, but Christ has made her so, and so she can present herself perfect as compared to the other way, which is Christ has made herself, and he's coming to, to get her. So you can do it either way. Obviously, culturally, it would be that the bride comes down last, and there's a big uh, to-do about that in, in many ways. So, But I think what we have to be careful about is that we don't put so much... A tradition and perspective on this wonderful, beautiful bride that we miss the aspect or the role that the wedded husband is to be playing, which is he's to be the covenant keeper, and he's the one who's to portray Christ, and he's the one who is to love and to lead unconditionally because he's supposed to picture Christ. And certainly the wife is does not get away scot-free. She has much that she has to do. But if in the portrayal of the gospel... Obviously, Christ is, is supreme there. Certainly, there's many other questions we could ask. We could ask, well, why do you have to exchange the rings? And there's a lot that can go on there. Uh, none of that would have to necessarily pertain to whether or not you're married, uh, whether or not you're, you're legally married. The, a legal biblical marriage would be that you stand before witnesses and you covenant before God and those witnesses what you proclaim to do, and they hold you accountable. And so really, you could just go up to the front of the church and stand there and say a whole bunch of things, and you wouldn't have to have music, and you wouldn't have to walk down the aisle, and you wouldn't have to do any of that. All that's fine and beautiful, 
but it certainly doesn't have to happen because you're simply standing for a person person and you're signifying to them for all others your intentions. The Jewish custom was even less than that. It was it was just hey I'm going to love you and I'm going to care for you and I may not even know you. I am choosing to do so and here we go. We're going to consummate the wedding and then we're going to have a celebration and we're going to love one another irregardless of what we emotionally think. And we in the Western culture say, oh, how could you ever do that? Well, love is a choice. Because if we were, if love was not a choice, we would not have the gospel. Because Christ would have never said, I, you know what, those disgusting, nasty, nasty creatures who want to spit on me and rebel against me, yep, I'm, I'm just feeling love to them. No, he didn't. He chose to love us when we were unlovely. And there would be a, a very beautiful picture there. Let me just give a, a few quick thoughts here not pertaining to the marriage ceremony. I'm going to give you, um, young people, I, I want to drive, uh, five minutes, I want to drive this straight at you. I'm going to give two things. One would be, um, and some of you may have heard this, how to affair-proof your marriage. And I'm going to take it to how to affair-proof your future marriage for you young people. So listen very carefully to this. Because this really, if you can do this, in your relations, even as a young person with the opposite sex, this will really help you be prepared for marriage. And this is um, not something uh, that's original to me by any means. This would be uh, this would be given by someone else. This is by Nicholas Ellen, who is a pastor in in Houston, and and this is what he would say here. Five T's. Five T's. Pretty simple. Time. Be number one. Talking would be number two, transparency, trust, and touching. I'm going to go through them again. Time, talking, transparency, trust, and touching. And here's how this works. As a married person, you're having difficulties in the marriage. And that is a time of weakness. And so you happen to go to the office, and there's your secretary, and you happen to spend a lot of time with her that day as a man. And you start talking to her, and then you're transparent. You know, I'm really, Missy back home is really, she's struggling, and I'm struggling. And, oh, you know, she says, oh, yeah, I can, God, that is so hard. And all of a sudden, he's getting affirmed, like he would desire to be at home. And so he confides in her, you know, this is really tough, and I'm actually thinking that we might have to end a divorce. He's now confiding and trusting with her, not just transparent. And next thing you know, he's behind her as he watches her type something up for him, and he's touching her on the shoulder, and the next thing happens would be probably there would be an affair well how does this happen with young people young people oftentimes you spend an exorbitant amount of time talking and uh, being very transparent uh, overly transparent and trusting another person and even touching them in the culture with the opposite sex and that does not prepare you well for marriage i encourage you to be godly brothers and sisters in christ and have godly edifying conversations but just as a flirtatious, lots of time about nothing, and just talking, 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 and there's really no uh, point to the matter. There's no purpose. There's no intentionality to it. There's really nothing other than just what's going on in the culture, and now you're trusting this person. Um, you're spending a lot of time with them. And then our culture is a very touchy culture, so you're touching them. That's dangerous, dangerous business. And I would encourage you young people, be very careful about that because you're not preparing yourself well for marriage by following the cultural paradigm of how to relate to another person of the opposite sex. The second thing I wanted to say was, in Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother. And there's this leaving and cleaving principle. 
And in the rebellious culture of the Western society, we have really no trouble leaving. It's the cleaving principle that we have the difficulty. And we really have no trouble cleaving. Unfortunately, the cleaving is to ourselves because we promoted a very selfish culture. So, uh, yeah, I want to get out of the house. Mom and Dad, man, they're just pushing all this stuff on me. I want to leave as fast as I can. Here's this beautiful guy, excuse me, handsome guy, beautiful woman over there. And I'm going to get out and go over there and just you know, join them. And they, they really know about me a lot more than Mom and Dad. And then you get over there and you really start to struggle because you've left and maybe you've moved 500 miles away and uh, you're no longer anywhere near them, but you're really struggling with your marriage. Well, the struggle is is you're not cleaving. You're cleaving to yourself. You're cleaving to all the selfishness that you've accumulated in the society that we have today, which promotes singlehood. It is very much, go do this, be your own person. You don't need the church, don't need anybody else, don't need to be held accountable. You can do whatever you like. You're the lone wolf, and you can run the pack. And then you're supposed to cleave to someone else, and you're sitting there going, I really like just me. And you're now telling me to do something that you want to do? That's eh, tough. So what I would encourage you to do is, um, and I'm going to read a passage here. I'd encourage you to go to it as it close here on some thoughts. Just go to Deuteronomy 13. It's a key passage, and it's actually the passage that I'm going to be preaching on at Christopher and Amanda's wedding. So you get a little, little appetizer, a little precursor here. What I would encourage you to do, young people, is the biblical leaving and cleaving principle was not that you had to go very far. It was just that you were leaving your father's household and you were going to the tent right next door and you were getting married to your wife. Or you were given as a bride out of your tent, out from underneath your father's authority over to your husband's and y'all were in the same same neighborhood of tents. And you know they moved as families. So many families were very large together. And we've th- we think leaving and cleaving, that means you got to go a long way away. And you know what? That may not always be uh, a bad thing to take a few blocks. Very few people have uh, the in-laws I have where you can live 50 feet out the back door. And that really requires that you have people that understand the biblical uh, concept of leaving and cleaving, which my in-laws do very well. But there's this concept that we have to really leave. And what I'm going to tell you is you're not going to have any trouble leaving if you understand what it means to cleave. In Deuteronomy 13.4, would be a clear understanding first. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice. And remember, a marriage is a picture of Christ and His church. So look what we're called called to do. And you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. And some translations say you shall serve Him and cleave to Him. So we're supposed to leave the world and cleave to Christ. And when you can leave the world and cleave to Christ, and you can obey Christ as a single person, the best way you can learn to leave and cleave as a single person is learn to serve really well. Because if you can learn to serve those in your family and those that are around you or those that are in the church, if you can learn to put yourself in positions that are outside of your comfort zone in order to help someone else, you're going to not have as much trouble cleaving. Because that's just going to be your modus operandi, your natural course of action, is to say, hey, I want to help and serve this other person. And that creates a deeper cleaving aspect, rather which is rather than, hey, I'm just fine over here. I want you to help me. I want you to cleave to me, rather than, obviously, uh, serving the other individual. So what I'm telling you is, just in preparation for marriage, young people, 
if you want to have a not just a beautiful wedding ceremony, but a beautiful marriage, which is really what we're going after, beautiful marriages, wedding ceremony will take care of itself. The marriage is what we're looking at. If you want to have a beautiful marriage, then learn to serve well. Learn to serve Christ first, and then you'll be able to transfer that to another person in the relationship. So we have just scratched the surface, probably enough just to stir up more snakes than I can kill in one day, on wedding ceremonies. But I would encourage you, uh, fathers and mothers, to take the opportunity Tuesday night, have a great opportunity, and drive back home Wednesday morning, family devotions. What do we see at Christopher and Amanda's wedding? What do we think of that? How, how, could we, how could we build on what they've done? And how can we uh, twist things up and making sure we're putting in the right things? And There's a lot of different things that, that go on. Christopher and Amanda have a few surprises in their ceremony, which is a little different twist than the way some would do it. And they're all really good. And I think they help portray in a different way uh, the gospel presentation, which is what we're going after in a wedding ceremony. But what I, in, in closing here, what I want to leave you with is what, what you've got to be thinking when you go to a wedding ceremony is what are they covenanting to do before God and others? And are they covenanting to do what Scripture commands they have to do? Husband to lead in love, wife to obey, submit, serve. Obviously, the, wife, the husband has to uh, respect and serve, and there's much of that in Scripture as well. But we've got to make sure that we're covenanting according to Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 or we're just in the other wedding. We're not a Christian wedding. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for the day. We thank you for scripture. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to look um, just, just a little bit into what our culture says is required and yet what scripture gives and Father, I just I pray especially for these young people, Father, we would not get caught up in the trappings of the culture. We would see Scripture as supreme, as we would see it as uh, the greatest delight to be able to conform ourselves to. And I pray, Father, that as we would celebrate by your marvelous grace this wonderful season that we're in of many people getting engaged and married, that we would just renew in our minds once again just the desire to to proclaim the gospel in the way we conduct ourselves, either as single people and conducting ourselves, uh, seeking to be a pure bride for Christ, waiting for your return as married, seeking to be a clear picture of the gospel, of your relationship with your bride, the church. And Lord, that we would we would view with a loving eye but with a discerning eye the ceremonies that we would go to, being able to encourage our children, especially, and others around us, uh, how, uh, how we can begin to strengthen and build up the marriages in our society that are so weak, just from the very beginning, that, that starting even at the ceremony, and, uh, and through discipleship, starting even before then, and encouraging and strengthening young couples as they enter into a relationship. Thank you, Father, for uh, your grace and mercy in our lives. Father, we thank you that you never leave us nor forsake us, that you are you, your good mercy to us, your covenant faithfulness to us uh, will always abide, that as we daily fall short, you never do, and that you are always there, uh, ready and waiting and uh, longing to be in right relationship with, to, with us, Lord. And 
Thank you and praise you for the day that we have. And I pray now, Lord, as we would fellowship, as we would prepare ourselves for the preaching of the word in the second service, and that our hearts would be uh, knit closer together and we would be able to uh, corporately sing your praises with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength this morning. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.